0: Ladies and gentlemen welcome to the London School of Economics and to tonight's events welcome students welcome faculty welcome members of the public I'm Craig Calhoun the director of the LSE and it is a great pleasure to welcome my longtime friend Dr. William Janeway to the LSE this evening and also my new colleague and I hope friend Professor Dimitri Vianas The format of this evening's event will be a talk by Dr. Janeway for around 40 minutes and a response from Professor Vianos for around 10 minutes, after which we will open up to questions from the audience for the remaining half hour. Bill Janeway has lived a double life of theorist practitioner. This label was bestowed on him by the legendary economist Hyman Minsky who first applied that term to him 25 years ago might add that there should be some sort of chart of the frequency of citations to Hyman Minsky which would show how much his work has become central to discussions after the crisis, sadly not before. In his role as practitioner, Bill Janeway has been an active venture capital investor for more than 40 years. During that time, he built and led the Warburg-Pincus technology investment team that provided financial backing to a series of companies making crucial contributions to the Internet economy, including BEA Systems, Veritas Software, and more recently, Nuance Communications, the speech recognition company. He remains actively engaged as a senior advisor and managing director at Warburg-Pincus. As a theorist, Janeway received a PhD in economics from Cambridge University. I'm happy to say that he was the kind of theorist who took history seriously, not only models, where he was a Marshall Scholar. His doctoral study on the formulation of economic policy following the Great Crash of 1929 was supervised by Keynes' leading student, Richard Kahn, author of the foundational paper, The Multiplier. More recently, Janeway returned to Cambridge where he founded the Endowment for Research in Finance and is a visiting scholar in the economics faculty. He also renewed in this move back to Cambridge, he renewed his career as a writer on economics and indeed on broader affairs in the social sciences. Currently he serves still as a teacher and fellow at Cambridge. He has also taught at Princeton University. Janeway is a director of Magnet Systems, Nuance Communications, O'Reilly Media, and a member of the Board of Managers, a key early backer of Rubini Global Economics, founded my former colleague, Noriel Rubini. He is a member of the Board of Directors of the Social Science Research Council and a co-founder and member of the governing board of the Institute for New Economic Thinking. His new book, Doing Capitalism in in the Innovation Economy, Markets, Speculation, and the State, is on sale outside the venue, and he will be signing copies at the end of the event. He will discuss the book and explain one core argument in his remarks. But as I have said in print, let me say, Bill's book is both a must-read and a fun read. Dimitri Vianos is Professor of Finance and Director of the Paul Woolley Center for the Study of Capital Market Dysfunctionality at the LSE, I might add that Paul Woolley shares much with Bill Janeway, including a double career in finance and academia. Prior to joining the LSE, Dimitri Vyanos was a faculty member at Stanford and MIT. His research focuses on financial markets with frictions and on the frictions implications for market liquidity, market anomalies, and limits of arbitrage, financial crises, welfare, and policy. For those Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is LSE Janeway. Now, please join me in welcoming Dr. William Janeway to give his lecture entitled What I Learned by Doing Capitalism.
1: Thank you very much, Craig. Uh, First, I should say that. Since I am not the leader of a British political party, I have not memorized this lecture. Uh, But also, since I'm not a former um, president of the United States, I promise that I will not wander from my text for twice the time (laughs) allotted, however brilliantly and enthusiastically and movingly such uh, a diversion might might prove to be. So let me begin. As as, as Craig said, uh, in 1971, I I left Cambridge after four years of immersion in the economics of Keynes, and I must say that is not Keynesian economics. Um, That allowed a, that provided me with an unusual, and it proved to be enormously valuable, intellectual endowment. Uh, First of all, it required recognition that there is an essential integration between finance and economics. Economic decisions have financial consequences, financial decisions have economic consequences and each is the context for the other at every level from the most micro to the most macro. Second, it brought with it that endowment a a certain skepticism uh, for the notion of efficient markets and the promise of persistent equilibrium. And third, It meant, and this was fundamental, it meant recognizing the inevitable ontological uncertainty under which economic and financial decisions are made. It also carried with it an inhibition, and the inhibition was against teaching what had become the standard curriculum in all of America's economic departments, Samuelson's neoclassical synthesis. And as a consequence, I left academia, I stumbled into the innovation economy, by way of joining one of the many private investment banking firms that populated Old Wall Street. All were subsidized by the fixed brokerage commissions imposed by the New York Stock Exchange. The firm I joined, F. Everstat, was distinguished by its exclusive focus on the science-based industries, from chemicals to pharmaceuticals and on to electronics and computing. Now, I must say, for the younger in the audience, and that means almost everybody younger than I, uh, this was when, hard as it is to believe, sell-side investment research was an honorable profession. <laughs> Thus, doing capitalism at F. Eberstadt offered a privileged opportunity to learn the dynamics of the process to which technological innovation transforms the market economy. The innovation economy begins with discovery and culminates in speculation. Over some 250 years, economic growth has been driven by successive processes of trial and error and error and error. Upstream exercises in research and invention and downstream experiments in exploiting the new economic space opened by innovation. Each of these activities necessarily generates waste, much waste, along the way. Dead-end research programs, useless inventions, and failed commercial ventures. In between, The innovations that have repeatedly transformed the architecture of the market economy from canals to the internet have required massive investments to construct networks whose value in use cannot be imagined at the outset of deployment. And so, and this is the first theme, at each stage, the innovation economy depends on sources of funding that are decoupled from a primary concern With economic return and economic value. Upstream, when mechanical tinkering yielded to scientific discovery as the basis for economically meaningful innovation, funding was initially supplied by the great corporations that had been spawned by the second industrial revolution. These supported, or at least tolerated by the state, channeled a portion of their profits into central research labs. Over a long generation, their seemingly unassailable competitive positions were lost to competition or to deregulation. But by then, in the United States, a cadre of political entrepreneurs had invented national security and human health as legitimizing rationales for direct state investment in science. The transformational networks of infrastructure that implement the innovation economy can be planned, built, and funded by the state. The U.S. Interstate Highway System is one example. They could also be planned, built, and funded by the willing collaboration of promoters and speculators. In this case, the original British railway system is the model. In both cases, the calculus of expected economic return was a secondary, a marginal consideration. Hence, the endless miles of superhighway crossing the empty wastes and wilderness of the American uh, West. (laughs) (laughs) And in Britain, the duplication of competing routes and the destructive competition that followed hard on the railway mania of the 1840s. Downstream, the innovation economy is driven by financial speculation. Throughout the history of capitalism, bubbles have emerged and exploded wherever liquid markets and assets exist. The objects of speculation have ranged across a spectrum that challenges the imagination, from tulip bulbs to gold and silver mines to the bonds of of new states of unknowable wealth and, of course, again and again to property, to real estate and to the shares of corporations. The central dynamic is that the price of the financial asset is separated from concern with the underlying cash flows past, present or possible future generated by the economic assets it represents. Speculators in the financial asset can and often do profit even when the project they have financed fails. Inevitably, the speculation collapses. The more it's been fueled by credit and has infected the banking system, the more more disastrous the economic consequences, and the broader and more urgent the plea for public relief. Occasionally, decisively, the object of speculation is the financial representation of one of those fundamental technological innovations, canals, railroads, electrification, automobiles, airplanes, computers, the Internet, deployment of which at scale transforms the market economy. From the wreckage of the financial bubble, as Carlotta Perez in this slide illustrates, a new economy emerges. Both upstream and downstream, absence of market discipline is the essence of the process. Contrary to the central dogma of neoclassical economics, efficiency is not the virtue of a market economy when growth is driven by that creative destruction identified by Schumpeter as the engine of economic development. The prime virtue is the ability to tolerate unavoidable waste. So the state has become central to the innovation economy's dynamics, to fund the upstream research that generates discovery and invention, to support the deployment of new networks, to serve as a creative customer for the new products and services generated, and to preserve continuity in the market economy when the speculative bubble that has funded its transformation bursts. I've come to read this history as driven by three sets of continuous, reciprocal, interdependent games played between the state, the market economy, and financial capitalism. Through the centuries, the state and the market economy have variously collaborated and competed in the allocation of resources and the distribution of income and wealth. And financial capitalism has emerged to exploit discontinuities in market and political processes, while itself it depends on those same processes for its prosperity and even at time for its survival. Thus, over some 250 years, the innovation economy has been driven by a three-player game, one that's as indeterminate as the three-body problem in physics. In this lecture, I will explore the dynamics of the game through the lens of U.S. venture capital, drawing on some 40 years of my work. Examining the context in which the venture capital industry emerged and, for a brief two decades, flourished, can illuminate both its own limited role and that of the two institutions on which it has depended. In 1980, following amendment of the ERISA Regulations in Washington, that permitted pension funds to invest in such risky assets as venture capital, total capital committed to members of the National Venture Capital Association was all of $2 billion, about $5.5 billion in 2010 terms. 20 years later, and I don't think I have a, a uh, laser pointer, but um, 20 years later, as you can see, there was an explosion in funding for venture capital as the great state pension funds all became herd followers. That's great. We'll need it later. The um, access to the stock market during this period up through 2000 was almost continuous. The IPO market was available. This is an eye chart. It's only to suggest that there were IPOs up through the bubble of 2000. The IPO market was open almost continuously to provide some sense of scale some sense of scale back in 1983 we thought that this was what a bubble looked like and of course it was just a trivial passing phenomenon compared to the amount of money raised then and the amount of money raised by IPOs or venture backed companies in the bubble it was quite trivial Here we have a flag for identifying the factor that has dominated venture returns over the past generation, namely the state of the public equity markets and especially the market for initial public offerings. Looking across the entire span from 1980 to the post-bubble era, the dependence of venture capital returns on the access to the IPO market is clear. My own research, in collaboration with Michael McKenzie of Sydney, University characterizes each quarter since the start of 1980 by the number of venture backed IPOs and the proportion of them that were for companies not yet profitable. McKenzie and I employed these figures to generate an index of IPO market speculation. We found that when distributions to the investors coincided with IPO market conditions characteristic of a bubble, that's greater than three over here, the returns were spectacular the median return was 76%. In a depressed IPO market, the median returns were a miserable 9% and, in fact, uh, were substantially lower than the public equity markets as a whole. The impact of the bubble and its aftermath on the profile of venture capital returns is enormous. From the incipient emergence of a venture capital industry in 1981 through funds launched in 1994, the aggregate cash-on-cash return to the limited partners, net of fees and carried interest, was about 3.25 times. For the 95 vintage, the multiple reached six. For the 96 vintage, it was still five times cash-on-cash. However, from 1998 on, the aggregate total value of paid-in capital for members, uh, value to paid in capital for members of the NVCA has never exceeded one and a half times. The 10-year return on the, end, on the USBC index turned negative at the end of 2009 and declined at a compound annual rate of 2% through 2010 before turning modestly positive, 4.4%, but less than the NASDAQ return through the first quarter of 2012. Correlated with the decline in venture returns to 2000, is the sharp and prolonged decline in the IPO market from an average of 547 IPOs per year during the 90s to 192 since 2001. After a post-bubble re- rebound in the mid-2000s, new commitments to venture funds have declined sharply to $16 billion in 2009, $14 billion in 2010, and $18 billion last year. The president of the NVCA, Mark Heason, summarized the state of the industry when he presented the data on 2011, concluding, our cottage industry is indeed getting smaller still and that will impact the startup ecosystem over time. The dependence of venture capital returns on the state of the IPO market at time of exit is one of four stylized statistical facts about venture capital. The second one, widely recognized, is the extraordinary skew in such returns. A very small number of VC firms drive the aggregate returns for the industry as a whole. In the database that we studied, which was substantially better than the total industry, the mean internal return was 47%, but look at the top decile, 200% 200 for for both the median and the mean, and take them out and the returns drop very substantially. Now, the monotonic increase in returns over the, uh, five, the, the periods that have broken out might suggest that American venture capitalists were learning by doing. Wrong. <laughs> Even with the top funds included, the returns realized by the funds that we studied and other similar analyses show that the VC returns were broadly... Broadly comparable in statistical measure with the returns available from the public equity market. Because we had access to the actual dated cash flows between the limited partners who provided us with the data and the funds in which they invested, a rare circumstance, I may say, we were able to compare the returns realized by these funds to what an investor would have received by investing (coughs) in the public market. Following Kaplan & Shore, we created a synthetic alternative fund for each actual fund by (coughs) investing the same number of dollars that went into the fund on each date into the NASDAQ index. We created a parallel synthetic fund, and every time money came from the venture fund back to the limited partner, we took it out of the index. This is called the public market equivalent, and it's a methodology that's now become generalized. The result was striking. While the mean return to the 136 venture funds was 1.6 times what would have been realized, when the top decile down here is excluded, the mean return drops to 1.02 and the median return, including the top decile, is exactly the same as you would have gotten by investing in the NASDAQ with complete liquidity and uh, access to uh, transparency. These findings have recently been validated by the Kaufman Foundation, the leading source of funding for academic research on entrepreneurship. The title uh, says a great deal. Um, in some, they, 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 they conclude limited partners invest too much capital in underperforming venture capital funds on frequently missilized terms. Now, The third stylized fact is that, in contrast with other asset classes, persistence can be detected in the returns of individual managers. Analysis of our data confirmed the financings of a server of a broader sample of funds. Performance of a given fund is a significant predictor of the returns realized by the next fund of the same managers. Persistence in the success rate of serial entrepreneurs can also be discerned. Confirming the intuition that superior venture capitalists and superior entrepreneurs establish a self-reinforcing positive feedback loop. But here's the point. Taken together with the skew in returns and the correlation of fund performance with the public equity markets, the conclusion is evident. Definition of venture capital as a distinct asset class to which capital should be allocated is literally a category error. Investment in the few persistently successful VCs represents an exceptional opportunity for those with access to them. But broad identification of venture capital as a superior asset class, let alone as a transformative instrument of state policy, misinterpreted what has proved to be a transient epiphenomenon, riding on the back of the greatest bull market in the history of capitalism. The fourth stylized fact of venture capital has been barely touched by academic research and yet has the most profound significance for understanding how the innovation economy works. Professional venture capitalists in the United States have concentrated their activities and earned their returns in a very small number of industrial domains. In the three decades since 1980, ICT, Information and Communications Technology, has accounted for 50 to 75% of all dollars invested by members of the NBCA, with the average share usually hovering just around uh, 60%. Together with biomedicine, with biotech and healthcare, these two sectors have consistently accounted for 80% of all dollars invested by venture capitalists. Why has it been in the world of IT and secondarily biomedicine that venture capitalists have been successful? In brief, only in those sectors did the state invest at sufficient scale in scientific discovery and the translation to technological innovation. In other words, thanks to the Department of Defense and the National Institutes of Health, the federal government funded construction of a platform on which entrepreneurs and venture capitalists could dance. Let's focus on ICT, which happens to have been where I have lived since the early 1970s. National funding of the basic research that enabled the IT revolution was overwhelmingly provided by the Department of Defense. The Soviet threat, crystallized in the years following 1945 and amplified by the Korean War in 1950 and the launch of Sputnik in 57, was the context for the U.S. military's massive commitment to renewing its wartime role as the principal financier of technical research and the principal customer for the products generated therefrom. The scale of R&D funding was substantial. For 25 years through 1978, federal sources accounted for more than 50% of national R&D expenditures in the U.S. and exceeded the R&D expenditures of all other OECD OECD governments combined. As my partner, Henry Crissell, at Warburg Pincus would write in retrospect, drawing on his own entry into the digital research enterprise at RCA's Sarnoff Labs around 1960, quote, the real visionaries in the early days were to be found in U.S. defense organizations. By the mid-1950s, the Department of Defense had already funded some 20 research projects to construct digital computers, even before the Soviet launch of Sputnik catalyzed creation of DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. From microelectronics and semiconductor devices through computer hardware and software and onto the internet, development of all of the components of digital information and communication technology reflected state policies for R&D and procurement. Ah, we're missing a slide. As Fabrizio and Maui write. The Defense Department encouraged the entry of new firms and inter-firm technology diffusion. In addition, federal procurement supported the rapid attainment by supplier firms of relatively large production runs, enabled faster rates of improvement in product quality and cost than otherwise would have been realized. Finally, federal support of innovation in IT contributed to the creation of large-scale R&D infrastructure in federal labs and especially in U.S. universities. During prior technological revolutions that have defined the succession of new economies since 1750, large-scale government support for the deployment of more or less proven technologies has been significant and at times decisive. Even in the US, state credit was used to fund canal building and the gift of public land subsidized railroad construction. But the post-World War II engagement of the US Department of Defense to finance both fundamental research and the technological development necessary to produce reliable devices and systems was entirely unprecedented. Much of the funding was directed to the industrial research labs of the great corporations, AT&T, IBM, RCA, whose monopoly rents had funded scientific advance and innovative engineering from the late 19th century to World War II. But much was distributed more broadly, especially to universities, and therefore accessible by venture capitalists. Moreover, the corporate suppliers were required to share the results of research, not only with each other, but with new entrants. When their monopoly profits came under pressure beginning in the 1970s and all the industrial sponsors pressured their central labs for product-oriented, applied R&D, the new academic networks of research and and innovation were in place. In my own life as a practitioner, the dual dependency on speculation in the state was exemplified by the most successful investment I ever led, BEA Systems, not BAE Systems, <laughs> BEA Systems. The story of BEA dramatizes the complex dynamics of the innovation economy. The source of its initial product was research funded by a state-sanctioned monopoly that, when liberated to compete commercially, had no idea how to do so. Its phenomenal growth was a function of the maturation of the internet offspring of DARPA, as an environment for commerce. And the extraordinary investment returns that it delivered were due to the speculative excesses of equity investors who had recognized the emergence of a new digital economy. BEA, that is to say, represented the apotheosis of the three-player game's intersection with the innovation economy. In 1995, Robert Pincus backed three experienced executives, Bill Coleman, Ed Scott, and Alfred Schwang, B-E-A, that's where the name came from. Our shared mission was to leverage the new generation of computing technologies in order to exploit IBM's version of, its, of the innovator's dilemma, its inability to cannibalize its own hugely profitable franchises. Together, we invest, identified a potentially enormous opportunity to deliver software that would enable large enterprises to manage their mission-critical business transactions on the new distributed computing networks. We jumpstarted the venture by acquiring relevant technology called Tuxedo that had been developed by AT&T's Bell Labs. That acquisition transformed BEA into a business with annualized revenues in excess of $100 million by January 31, 1997, the end of its first full fiscal year, as it reached positive cash flow. The success of Tuxedo enabled BEA to go public in April 97, barely a year after the acquisition of Tuxedo. In its turn, a second decisive acquisition was contingent on that timely IPO. By 1998, the explosive growth of the Internet as an environment for conducting commerce was visible to all interested parties. But none of the extant technologies had been designed to accommodate online electronic transactions with literally millions of simultaneous users. As BEA worked to augment Tuxedo to enable it to support commerce e-commerce, a number of startups surfaced and almost as rapidly were acquired. Alfred Trang, running BEA's engineering ops, identified one whose technology met his standards and convinced Bill Coleman of the strategic value of the proposed acquisition. The venture and its product was called WebLogic. As of September '98, it had cumulative revenues of $500,000. But as the bubble began to inflate with the promise of the economic transformation being wrought by the Internet, So did the valuation of startups. WebLogic's asking price was no less than $150 million. But that was only 15% of BEA's also inflated $1 billion market valuation. As a result, BEA was able to use its stock as currency for an acquisition that otherwise could not have happened. That represented a conscious decision to refuse to accept the terms of the innovator's dilemma and instead to attack our own core business before anybody else could. WebLogic incorporated the most advanced software engineering techniques to achieve rapid deployment and high performance. It could be readily scaled from single user to very large environments. BEA was now a trusted source of mission-critical software for the enterprise market. Word spread across the technical communities that WebLogic was the way to transform the internet into an effective and secure platform for commerce. The result was phenomenal growth. From 290 million in the fiscal year ended January 31, 1999, to almost 500 million the following year, and more than 800 million in the year after that. The conjuncture that linked BEA's growth as a business with the stock market's evaluation of the new economy made BEA one of the all-time great venture investments. This is what a bubble looks like. When somebody tells you you can't tell a bubble when you're in one, this is what it looks like. <laughs> now, BA stock had been split two for one in December '99, and again in April 2000. So what you see here is a peak of it. Actually, the intra-month peak was 85, um, or 320 on the original shares that had been offered to the public at six. I don't think this is quite connecting, but you don't need it. Um, So in in August 1999, uh, which is right about this shoulder, Wilbur Pickers began to distribute. Uh, Within 16 months, our $54 million total cash investment had been transformed into liquid, freely tradable shares in the hands of our limited partners, amounting to $6.5 billion dollars. Our effort to declare victory was strenuous. In only 16 months, we made 12 distributions, the two largest of which each amounted to $1.3 billion and took place uh, right up here, <coughs> February 2000. Now, the bubble of 99-2000 revealed the financial dynamics of the downstream phase of the innovation economy at its most extreme. The host of hopeful monsters, the vast majority of which failed, could be funded precisely because those who provided the financing needed to have only minimal concern for the fundamental economic value of the ventures. The investment decisions by the founding VCs as well as by the willing IPO purchasers as the bubble took hold were not informed by evaluation of the future cash flows of the projects. The decisions were driven by the hope, indeed the expectation, that well before any cash flows could be generated, the shares would be sold to yet more optimistic or foolish here too, as with upstream investment in scientific discovery and technological innovation, the innovation, econ- invention, the innovation economy turns on the ability of the economic system to tolerate waste. The systemic cost is less to the extent, as was the case in 1999-2000, speculative excess is limited to the equity markets, and the collapse of the dot-com telecom bubble resulted in a very modest recession, nothing remotely resembling the crisis of 2008-2009. Finance theorists, including Professor Vianos, have constructed a rich literature on bubbles. Much of it consists of formal models to demonstrate how the actions of rational investors can drive prices away from the fundamental, the discounted net present value of expected future cash flows. For example, due to limits, the limits of arbitrage, limits to arbitrage. In my view, the relevance of much of this work is compromised by a residual faith in the touchstone of that knowable fundamental, privileging a certain set of investors with accurate expectations of the discounted value of future cash flows. It's missing the first reality of the equity markets. The novelist and screenwriter, William Goldman, legendarily defined the law of Hollywood as, quote, no one knows anything. The law of the equity markets is both softer and more complex. No one knows enough, and everyone at some level knows that about herself and everyone else. uh, Roman Friedman and Michael Goldberg put it neatly. In the vast majority of cases, the prospects of investment projects cannot be understood in standard, problematic, probabilistic terms. And this is obviously true for investments in innovative products and processes. Even more deeply relevant, however, are market models that begin by supposing the existence of a rational representative agent. In fact, the capital markets are populated by a diversity of human beings with widely varying beliefs, widely varying access to more or less imperfect information and degrees of confidence in their beliefs about possible future outcomes. The markets, after all, were invented in the first place to enable participants to trade titles to assets with each other. The notion of a representative agent is incoherent, justifiable only by the fanciful belief that trading activity will costlessly converge to that fundamental value which by hypothesis the representative agent already knows. The phenomenon that terminated the dot com telecom bubble stands witness. From the third quarter of 1999, over here, from the the value of total distributions by venture capital funds to their limited partners rose from 3.9 billion to 10.7 billion in the fourth quarter Then doubled again in the first quarter of 2000 to 21.1 billion. I am so pleased to say that Warburg Pincus was something like 15 to 20 percent of that total. This was by far the largest realization by venture capital firms ever. At the same time, the ratio of shares to cash, the ratio went from 1.27 in the third quarter to almost three in the fourth quarter, and then peaked at almost four four times the amount of shares versus cash in the first quarter of 2000. By distributing shares rather than selling them and distributing cash, the venture funds could mark the value of their realizations at the market price before the impact of incremental sales from the previous illiquid supply was felt. Limited partners subsequently required an average price over at least a month after distribution. That was not the case in 2000. Having been locked up, typically for six months by the terms of their contracts with the underwriters uh, of the IPOs, venture VCs were finally free to allow their limited partners to sell, and sell they did. But no, this signal requires the existence of multiple traders in the market disagreeing with each other as to the relationship of price to value. There were buyers for every sale. Since 2000, the exploration of bubble dynamics has broken out of the fetters of the rational expectations hypothesis to consider the behavior of agents whose expectations differ and who themselves recognize the limits of their own and others' knowledge. But it's not enough to contrast the new behavioral finance literature with the rational bubble literature, for in this term rational and in its antithesis, There's a nexus of confusion that infects both academic and popular discussion of how economic and financial agents think and act. Much of this originated with the hijacking of the term by the theorists of REH. Again, as Friedman and Goldberg have written, to be rational in this sort of world means knowing that you can't afford to believe that contrary to experience, you've found a true overarching forecasting strategy, let alone that everyone else has found it as well. Confusion is also created when the deployment of heuristics, rules of thumb that help investors make decisions under uncertainty, is branded as irrational. During my own education in the craft of venture capital, I learned early and painfully and too often that the sole conjoint hedge against the unanticipatable onset of adversity when stuff happens is cash and control. That is, unequivocal access to cash, enough cash to buy the time needed to find out what's going on and enough control of events to change the terms of the problem. At the micro scale of the VC, this means the power to force a sale of the project or to recapitalize it towards an amended goal and possibly to bring in new management. But the imperative to hedge uncertainty can be read at a grander scale, from JP Morgan's construction of a fortress balance sheet at the onset of the global financial crisis to China's accumulation of $3 trillion of reserves over the decade from the Asian flu at the end of the last millennium. In every case, it means holding irrationally large reserves of cash relative to what would be appropriate in the fantasy world of complete and efficient markets. Thus, Cassius was wrong. The fault is indeed in our stars. Born into a universe in which the second law of thermodynamics holds, and time's arrow moves in one direction only, we can't run the equations backward. We spend half our lives arguing about the meaning of a past that we have actually experienced, and the other half speculating about an infinite array of alternative futures. In this context, attributing market inefficiency to the irrationality of investors is fundamentally misfocused. In parallel with the maturation of the bubble literature within finance theory, attention is finally being drawn to why bubbles matter to the real economy. As usual, Keynes got there first. The balance between the valuation of financial assets and the cost of starting new businesses creates a bridge, what I call Keynes's bridge, between the financial markets and the real economy. And there's been recent research that shows just how quantitatively significant that bridge has been. This is from an empirical paper by Brown, Fazzari, and Peterson that shows the impact of the bubble on investment in R&D by U.S. companies less than 15 years old. It obviously was funded by access to cheap capital at enormous scale. As the history of BEA confirmed, the role of speculative financial excess complements the role of the state. Of course, economists have long recognized that market failure legitimizes state intervention, in theory, and the market's failure to allocate sufficient resources to scientific discovery and technological invention is often cited as a prime example. Yet, as an effective rationale for state intervention, market failure has proved inadequate. Instead, causes that transcend economic calculation, national development, national security, conquest of disease have been required but upstream and downstream as a result the dynamics of the innovation economy challenge the philosophical core of neoclassical economics the evolution of the innovation economy through historical time resists even defies reduction to the optimal intertemporal allocation of resources yet in the face of historical experience Persistent and excessive devotion to the principles of neoclassical economics have consequences. Those who hold the state to rigorous criteria of efficiency in the allocation of resources not only inhibit toleration of the Schumpeterian waste inherent in the operation of the innovation economy, they also encourage toleration of the deadweight loss that is represented by unemployed resources of human labor and physical capital. What in recognition of Keynes's valiant assault on the phenomenon I call Keynesian waste. During the 30s, Keynes sought to establish a new macroeconomic rationale for responsive state intervention, independent of the specific projects financed. He began with the recognition that the marginal productivity of unused resources is negative as skills atrophy and machines rust. Any vehicle that sponsors incremental consumption by providing employment of whatever sort would be a less bad alternative, even stuffing old bottles with pound notes and burying them under mountains of municipal waste. Keynes failed. He failed in that project as he ruefully recognized 10 years later. When full employment did return, it was the result of the most economically wasteful of all imaginable state investments, mobilization for total war. Today, 75 years on, the same arguments that block civilian investment by the state have been effectively remobilized. Definitionally waste- wasteful debt financed state expenditures will undermine the confidence of businessmen and investors alike. The oxymoronic pursuit of expansionary fiscal austerity serves both to rationalize toleration of Keynesian waste and to limit the toleration of Schumpeterian waste. And the double-edged impact is compounded by the interaction effect. When Keynesian waste is at a minimum, that is, in a high-growth, fully-employed economy, the consequences of Schumpeterian creative destruction will be more creative and less destructive. More innovations will be profitably exploited, and the people in capital stranded in legacy occupa- occupations will be more rapidly redeployed, and very much vice versa. Although Keynesian waste today is at a markedly lower level than characterized the Great Depression, the rich nations of the world seem determined to reenact that greatest of historic failures of economic financial policy. Forces have been at work for a generation to delegitimize the state as an economic actor. To the extent their success persists, in the near term we will forego growth, employment, and income. In the long term, we will witness the West's leadership of the innovation economy past even as the next new economy, a low-carbon economy, can be defined in broad strokes. But while we are forced to wait in frustration for that next new economy, there is work for practitioners in completing the rollout of this one. But more importantly, there is much work for the theorist. I did not expect to live to see the economics I had absorbed at Cambridge more than 40 years ago, the economics of Keynes, of uncertainty at the level of the individual and of consequent instability at the level of the integrated financial economy again becomes so relevant and so broadly recognized as such within the discipline. The intellectual entrepreneurs who have accepted the challenge to reconstruct financial economics are largely motivated by recognition that markets are not the mechanical, self-regulating artifacts of neoclassical theory. And so the state may be let back in at the macroeconomic level as required to stabilize an inherently unstable monetary production economy after current exercises in austerity have failed to generate renewed economic growth. But the reconstruction of financial economics will remain incomplete so long as its scope includes a positive role for the state in the three-player game of innovation. As we have seen, efficiency and austerity are the twin enemies of innovation. The intellectual framework that relates how Schumpeterian waste can be productively sponsored by the state is as urgently required as theories that subvert the toleration of Keynesian waste. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Bill Janeway, for that terrific talk. And now we have a response from Dimitri Vianis. (laughs)
2: Thank you. <laughs> okay, so uh, thank, many thanks to the director for uh, uh, inviting me to comment on this uh, um, very interesting talk. So um, I really enjoyed reading um, <coughs> the book by Dr. Janeway and, um, as well as the text of his uh, speech. It's a uh, very important and interesting set of ideas. So I shared his uh, uh, general... Sense that of the need to integrate uh, economics more closely with finance, and also that the fact that uh, a number of areas of finance theory need to be thought again uh, in line of in light uh, of reality. So, um, and certainly enlightened theory practitioners like uh, Dr. Jane Wake can provide a very, a very valuable perspective on uh, on this. So, um, my, in what I will do in my comments. First of all, I will summarize what I view as the key ideas um, that um, Dr. way is talking about. Then uh, I will try to prov- I will also provide some additional data, kind of complementing, supporting the the, uh, the perspective that he um, that he gave us. So, uh, okay. So here is uh, the way I would think, as, uh, yeah, in my head about the uh, ideas that are in the. Uh, The the main ideas are in the talk and in the book. So, first of all, innovation is underprovided by the private market. So, um, what we, what we economists call uh, the social returns to uh, R&D are are higher, can be significantly higher than the private returns. So, the returns that that a firm, a private firm, can earn by investing in R&D are lower than what the social planner uh, would, uh, I mean, society would earn because other firms could benefit. Why, I mean, because there could be externalities, uh, because, so, uh, externalities to other firms, to uh, uh, other industries. Uh, also, there can be financing frictions that uh, somehow can prevent an individual firm from realizing the full uh, returns as well. Now, how, so given this uh, bad situation, given that not enough innovation is provided relative to what a society would need, how can, um, what can be done? So, And Dr. Janeway identifies two channels. One is an active role by the state. The state somehow has in the past identified some particular areas where where innovation has been viewed as important and has massively subsidized innovation there. And the other kind of more... uh, 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 The other interesting bit, let's say, is the uh, role of the private market. Somehow that uh, having bubbles or overpriced stock markets can be sometimes a good thing because this fosters... uh, kind of innovation. This makes innovation cheaper from the point of view of individual firms and given that not enough innovation is done in the world, having more innovation is good from from society's viewpoint. So in the example that is uh, discussed in uh, much detail is the uh, um, innovation on information technology, mainly uh, in the 1990s and uh, 2000s. And also there's, I think, the very important issue of the green economy and this is, Dr. Dr. John Way presents this as uh, perhaps the main area for uh, where there could be a, 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 a boom in the future, the, innovation boom in the future, which I think is a great example. So, um, okay. Now, let me just provide a little bit of uh, supporting data, additional data, some of, uh, f- supporting of the, uh, of the uh, ideas here. So this is, um, so I try to find information about the social returns to R&D, how profitable is R&D from a firm viewpoint, the firm that does the R&D, And how how much society does benefit from it? I mean, other firms, the the economy at large. So economists have measured this thing. You can think it's very difficult to measure. But there are estimates for this. And there have been actually a number of studies, actually a number of them in the 80s and 90s. So what you see in um, column one... Okay, so anyway, column one says (coughs) own R&D. So this is the return to the individual firm. And um, this is about... 20% it goes from a uh, uh, th- uh, 17% to about 30%. Now the interesting thing is the second column which is used r&d. So it's r&d that uh, some is done in one industry and is used by other industries. And um, so maybe other firms can just use the knowledge of produced by a particular firm or industry without paying for it or because maybe sometimes they can hire uh, engineers that have been used in developing one technology to uh, do something related in another a firm or other industry, and these are quite high. The social returns are like of the order of uh, 70 to 80 percent, while the private returns are of the order of 20 to 30 percent. So, that, so, uh, so there are, seems to be big externalities. So there is this agreement among economists that R&D does involve externalities, and not to say about the externalities that the uh, that are involved in basic academic research. I mean, like, how many of us have benefited from knowing about the Riemann integral or, uh, uh, I don't know, Itos lemma, for example, and how what was the private return to those individuals? So. Um, now, what's the role of the financial markets? That's, that's the second uh, part of the Dr. Janeway's thesis. <coughs> so, which is that uh, somehow having overpriced stock markets can be a good thing because it raises R&D. And uh, this is actually a picture that uh, was mentioned in... Uh, uh, Dr. Janeway mentioned the stock, which is the... Uh, the so, the, the uh, dark uh, uh, line is the R&D done by uh, young, high-tech firms around the tech bubble. And you see that it... As Dr. Janeway mentioned, this increased quite a lot during the, uh, the years of the bubble, but then decreased subsequently. So somehow it seems that the, the ability of these firms to raise cheap equity finance enabled them to do more R&D. Now, was this R&D any good? Well, okay, it seems that it had, it seems to have had an effect. So this is uh, productivity. This is uh, U.S. Uh, uh, productivity growth, and uh, so you see. So this is computed by the uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics. And uh, so you see here, it was productivity was kind of high in the uh, in the 50s and 60s. Then it declined in the 70s and 80s uh, until the mid 90s. Roughly, there was this kind of second <coughs> regime, and then in the early, I mean, uh, in, the, in the first part of the of the new millennium, in the first decade, it was quite high again. So uh, somehow, this a, a number of economists believe that this increasing productivity is was driven by this, uh, by this by, in particular by information technology and by R&D, that was kind of technological progress on that front. So this can be useful for something. Innovation uh, has a return. Now, <clears throat> okay, so it's, kind of, it's a bit paradoxical somehow. Innovation a problem, can be a good thing because it facilitates innovation. So uh, firms, can, as Dr. Kempoy <coughs> mentioned, firms can fund R&D more cheaply. And venture capitalists are more willing to uh, invest in innovative firms because in public times they can exit at high prices and make high returns. Now, notice it, notice the dark side of that. There is a dark side, which is that uh, firms and the VCs are doing this at the expense of, uh, of some investors are essentially buying overpriced stocks. All these investors who bought these uh, high-tech firms uh, at the height of the bubble, yeah, I mean, some of these investors lost money quite a bit. So somehow this could... Create and maybe has created some backlash against the equity markets and against uh, the season. perhaps low, low confidence So it's kind of, in some sense, it's a bit sad that uh, innovative activity has to rely on, uh, on bubbles. I mean, it has to yeah, rely to some extent on bubbles and on uh, somehow that some investors are being fooled. But perhaps that's the name of the game. So, um, okay. So uh, a few curves, uh, curves of with my colleague Wolf uh, Axelson. So uh, this is a. Uh, so it confirms what Dr. Jay Way talked about his, uh, in his presentation. This is the that essentially this is have, have good market timing. So this is the uh, uh, exit. This is uh, the exit uh, strategies. So according to uh, so you as uh, you see, you can invest in a firm and then you can sell this either to another firm in the industry or it's called a trade sale. So this is the red curve. Or you can sell it in the through an IPO, and that you can see here that the so in just in of large, and you can see here that there were the there were lots of IPOs. This was the prevalent m- method of exit until the bubble, and then after the bubble, gone. So s- somehow, the these have, have had a good timing. They managed to get lots of these IPOs done before the um, before the bubble. So um, the other related point is that. So the high returns of the uh, of, of uh, that have been realized, uh, so by uh, in, by disease have been realized for, by the um, by those um, uh, funds that started before the bubble. So this is the is the, the see, this is the vintage year, years, the, the year the funds started. So returns are high until from the, in the mid 90s, from funds that started in the mid 90s. Funds that started in 1999, 2000, etc. So on, they have not done any better than just investing in the market. Okay, so I'm running out of time. So just uh, very quickly, um, f- one final uh, thought, and then I will stop. So um, our bubble is essential for innovation. So this, was, this is the NASDAQ uh, Composite Index that uh, we also saw, uh, saw earlier. We see this kind of massive bubble in the 2000, around 2000. Now, <coughs> this is a picture that relates to the previous picture that we saw about the R&D by uh, young firms. So this, this, uh, this um, dark uh, line here is the uh, sh- sh- um, is the R&D by mature and young firms together. So um, what we see here uh, in the high tech, what we see here is that this R&D, so it goes up, it goes up, it stops growing in 2000, but it does not go down. So somehow, uh, it's not that the bubble burst and R&D went, I'm to say, stopped happening altogether so in, that, in, the, in, the, in the high-tech industry. So it's the same, the, the same paper as, as the previous uh, picture uh, on the young firm. So somehow this raises interesting questions. So, um, okay, and actually that's a good way for me to summarize. So somehow it's, it seems quite clear uh, by the, in the data that innovation is under by the market. The market just does not that, that, uh, do enough. And I fully agree that the state must play an active role on that. and has played and should continue playing an active role. I agree with Dr. Janeway's comments on that. So the question is, what's the role of the financial market? So, over, so overpriced stock markets can raise R&D, especially by young curves. Clear evidence. On, I mean, evidence seems to be, there seems to be strong evidence on that, solid evidence on that. The question is, and I think this really becomes very important for future research to uh, kind of try to measure and clarify to what extent the effects of that uh, are commensurate. To the I mean, say, the costs, the, the benefits of that are commensurate to the costs and the severity of the bubble. I mean, during the bubble there was also some waste, and as mentioned also by Dr. Wade and you know other costs that could have that they have, have taken place. Like some firms would find uh, funding and they whatever waste of the money uh, in lots of different ways. So um, it would be important for um, um, research in that area to try to quantify a bit more the benefits from from having those bubbles. So. Um, I think that more stable and efficient financial markets is a desirable um, objective, but uh, it would be interesting to think more about these questions. So, anyway, so thank you very much. It's a very interesting...
0: (laughs) Thanks very much, Dimitri, for these comments. Let me now invite questions from the floor. Let me ask you to wait for one of the stewards in a red shirt to bring you the microphone and to begin by introducing yourself. Questions? Professor Janeway. In the first row on the left.
3: Uh, Alec. I'm Alec Bros, I'm an electrical engineer. Um, Bill, you didn't or nobody seems to have considered the supply of fundamentally new technology. You see, all through this period, the, the willingness of people to invest, in my experience, having lived in IBM in America for 20 years, was, you know, when we really had breakthroughs in electronics, in magnetic storage, in thin film displays, as the internet was built, it was obvious that R&D expenditures were going to lead to great advances. And so that helped it. And was, I, I think that has been... A fundamental influence. I mean, the fact is, for the last two, almost three decades, we have had no new fundamental technologies. We've advanced all the existing technologies, but that environment is, is changing. Uh, you, you might debate that, but I'd like you to discuss that.
1: Well, actually, uh, I certainly respect, and including the the original research done, particularly on the silicon side of things at IBM, and for. <clears throat> Lord Boris to describe himself as an electrical engineer, is is, is an excessive degree of indulgence in British uh, 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 self-abasement and um, humility. Um, The former vice chancellor of Cambridge University played a primary role in the advances of semiconductor technology at IBM for many years. But, you know, the, 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 the locus of advance has shifted. The area that I'm most interested in, and unfortunately Mike Lynch of autonomy just left, Uh, I don't know, I hope I didn't say anything inappropriate (laughs) Uh, the advances in software and in particular the advances in in applied mathematics to the enormously growing stores of big data the developments in predictive analytics, the developments in extracting meaning uh, from everything from digitized uh, text of, of, of speech uh, to censor data uh, that is a domain I think of enormous promise it is where yes the US government and other governments are continuing to provide funding after all the, the, the extreme example of the, of the commercial value of this kind of work is something called the PageRank algorithm which enabled the creation of Google which in turn, that work was funded by the National Science Foundation in the United States. Um, But there's not that much going in, and where I find the real frustration is the lesson of the role the state can play as a creative and farsighted customer is really underplayed. And in the U.S., I, I think it's a tragedy that President Obama inherited, renewed, and expanded a very badly conceived program of the Bush administration of loan guarantees for uh, advanced energy technology firms. Uh, That was a a, a program that began uh, before 2008. uh, And the embarrassment of the Solyndra loan guarantee and the pending embarrassment of the Tesla loan guarantee and the fact that the leading innovative battery company A123 has consumed $800 million of every imaginable kind of funding, including state funding, and a month ago was taken over by a Chinese company. um, Versus doing what the Defense Department did with IBM as a beneficiary 30, 40 years ago, saying Okay, if you can deliver a battery with this degree, this amount of energy density, or a solar cell with this efficiency, we'll buy 1,000, and we'll test the hell out of them. And if they work, we'll buy 10,000, and we'll start putting them in some Army trucks and really working them. And if they really work, you know, we'll, we'll take the post offices off the grid. We'll become the proving ground for this technology at scale. That's exactly what DOD did in the 1950s and 60s. That's what's not happening now, and that's what's so frustrating.
0: Another a question here on the aisle. Uh, hi, Dr. Janeway. My name is Nicholas Walters. I'm a grad student here at LLC. Uh, I have a two-part question. I'm curious in terms of your view in the tech sector and in terms of IPOs, which you mentioned a lot in your talk, do you think that we are sort of in a period of multiple expansion in terms of companies going public? Or do you think that, I guess, maybe Facebook marked the top? And as a corollary to that question, and the professor brought this up in terms of IPOs, you know, Facebook, Zynga, Groupon, all these companies have really uh, collapsed since going public. Don't you think that partly the reason why IPOs have gone down and why they may not come back up is if these companies are going public at too high valuation?
1: Well, that that's a recurrent phenomenon um, I think you have to break it into two or three different pieces. First, since the bubble, there's been an architectural change in the capital market, fundamental change in the capital market. The, um, the, company, the, the investment banks that took all those companies public back in the 1990s, they were not run by stupid people. So guess what they did at the, at the peak of the bubble? They all sold themselves. Robertson-Stevens, Alex Brown, Hambrecht and Quist all sold to big banks. Tom Weisel actually sold his firm three times. Very creative guy. Uh, they disappeared. At the same time, and this is the second aspect, beginning way back in the world of old Wall Street in the mid-'70s and then in London in the mid-'80s, what deregulation and big bang and the elimination of the monopoly position, which led to great inefficiency in transactions, It took away the financial base and the business model for the intermediary whose position in the market was based on information. The subsidy to those brokerage firms through fat trading margins and fat commissions was taken away. In fact, by the mid-80s, we could see this happen. My wife and I, in fact, were partners in one of those firms. And we could see by 1985 that the path forward for that kind of firm, for brokerage business of that sort, were two directions, commoditization or prostitution. First we got prostitution, now we have commoditization. So today, to do an IPO, it has to be of sufficient scale to capture the interest, which means be big enough in terms of fees to earn the attention of one of the major dealer banks. And there are only a dozen of them in the world as a whole. That means it has to be at least $100 million in capital raised. That means the company issuing it has to have be worth at least $500 million or more. And that means it has to have, even in the world of social media, some promise of generating revenues in the hundreds of millions. When the data that I was showing on the IPO market adjusted for inflation, the typical, right through 1995, the typical IPO was at a scale of $30 million. It meant that a company with less than $50 million in current dollars could readily go public. So that isn't going to change. That's an institutional, generational, structural change. Now, the phenomenon of some greedy guts trying to promote uh, a a, a no-revenue, business into the public markets will always, we'll always be there. It was there in the 1690s. It was there in the South Sea bubble. That's a permanent feature of the landscape, and it will always compromise the hope for efficient and stable financial markets. Um, but I, I'm afraid that the, in the world of social media, we have a, you know, the, the last point here. The thing about social media is that the entry costs are essentially zero, You guys out there, you can start your hoped-for next Facebook without even using your parents' credit card. (laughs) Software is free. Open-source software is free. You can put it up on the net for nothing. Yeah, if you want to buy some AdWords, you're going to have to spend a little bit of money. But you can find out if somebody's biting. So the supply of that kind of, in fact, I think, technologically trivial innovation is enormous and out of it will come Darwinianly a Facebook and also will fail a Zynga but so I I don't look at those as being structurally significant
0: Moment about fifth row there Hi,
2: Dr. Jane Thank you for giving this talk. Um, My
1: name is Artemis Darcy. I'm a law graduate. Um, In relation to um, uh, the state and the green economy, what are your thoughts on the European Emissions Trading Scheme and Uh how do you think um, the aviation industry should respond? First of all, let me declare, just for everybody here, the question was about the European Emissions Trading Scheme and the attempt to impose this upon the the airline industry. I think one of the the major uh, reasons for delay and deferment, of course, in investment in low-carbon technologies of every sort is that international agreements of many different kinds will be needed to create an environment in which, on the one hand, mandatory regulation is not tradable away – you can't escape – and on the other, investment in relatively high cost, initially, uh, technologies are protected. I am um, not an expert on the, on the emissions scheme. My sense and understanding is that the structure and practice of it has been not very successful, that the, the carbon pricing has, has really not worked very well. Uh, of course, having a lot of people outside of it doesn't, must, must make it challenging. There is a a lot of literature around that, which I myself am barely competent. I cannot, I I can't meaningfully uh, comment on it. What I would say, however, is that mandatory regulation can make a difference. And in U.S. we have one prime example, and that is minimum fuel standards for automobiles, for new automobiles. It was one of the reactions to the first oil crisis. It was enormously effective. Over the course of 15 years, and it takes that long to turn over the fleet, the average fuel efficiency of the U.S. automobile fleet went up by something like 60 70%. Then, in the spirit of efficient markets, uh, from 1981, from President Reagan's election and, and inauguration, through until last year, there was no change in the regulations at all. This time around, the automobile companies in whose, in the U.S., in, in, whose existence had, in fact, been a function of state intervention during the crisis, actively supported a major increase in fuel standards, which will have an impact over the next 15 years. So there can be there, – there's a role for mandatory as distinct from market based. I think there's room for both, and I hope we will have better carbon trading, carbon pricing – Mechanisms in the future that we have today. Okay, gentlemen in
0: the back. Soon.
3: A broad question.
0: Uh, identify, uh, identify yourself, if you would.
3: Sorry. Say who you are. Yeah, I'm Ramesh Shukla. I'm a member of public. I'm no economist, um, but uh, I believe in, uh, in economists, and that's why I'm here. <laughs> Be uh, very careful. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have a certain respect for them. Now. Uh, Europe is going through a dire strait and we are engaging in both tension waste and the Mediterranean waste. Uh, have you got any, any uh, advice for the European Europe, politicians? Thank you. <laughs> That's either what in
1: America we would call a big fat pitch over the center of the plate or it's a bear trap. <laughs> uh, I, you know, there, there, there's... Um, The only, the only, the only response I really, I really do have, and it's one that I think applies on both sides of the ocean, attempting to starve your way back to health has worked in very, very rare circumstances. So my recommendation actually to the coalition government as well as to the European leadership would be get yourself in the position of Canada 20 years ago. Okay, Get yourself next to an economy that's more than 10 times your size, which is going through a massive investment bubble, and boom. Allow your currency to depreciate by 30%, and then cut your budget deficit. You'll get economic growth. You'll get economic growth. I have to say that the IMF of all people who have learned a lot of lessons from the Asian flu and from their role in, in, in extending it. Uh, the IMF's analysis of expansionary fiscal austerity is as good as anything that has been produced anywhere in the academic world, which is not a surprise, since the chief economist of the IMF is Olivier Blanchard, who is a great macroeconomist. Uh, and it makes the point I have made rather more, um, how shall I put it, with greater rigor, uh, but it's the point that, that that the IMF makes. That's the recommendation I would have. If you can't find that country to sit next to, then you maybe better
0: think about Plan B. <laughs> Another question. Man in Green, far left. Um, I'm Charles. I'm a student here at the LSE. I'm wondering, you're talking about this uh, process which leads to growth. Do you think that this specific way of of bubbles that funds innovation that leads to growth contributed to the jobless recovery? In other words, that what came afterwards was jobless?
1: I I want to make this big distinction, um, which which I made made briefly in my talk. It's made at much greater length in the book. The locus of the bubble really matters. If it's only in the equity markets, like 99 and 2000, my friend John Dore used to like to say that 99 and 2000, $6 trillion, the greatest creation of value uh, in the history of capitalism. Well, in 18 months, 12 months, that $6 trillion disappeared. But, you know, the economy did not go into into a state of paralysis. The banks weren't touched. Credit was freely available a relatively modest response by the Fed and the U.S. economy started growing again and growing again at scale. The bubbles in the credit markets, the bubbles that infect the credit system, that infect the banking system, are entirely different. So you have to make a distinction between, you think of this little two-by-two matrix, sometimes models really are useful. The object of speculation is it is it something that promises to deliver increases in productivity over time? Railroads, electrification, internet. Or is it tract houses in the Nevada desert? Third homes on the Costa Brava? Uh, Tulip bulbs, yes. Um, That's one. Second, is it financed by equity where, yes, there are losers, but Most people, you know, even in 1929, my old mentor, Les Chandler, professor of money and banking at Princeton, did an exhaustive study. Even in the great, great stock market bubble of 1929, barely 10% of the shares were actually purchased on credit. So when the stocks crashed, it wasn't because the stocks crashed that we had the world depression. That came in 1931 with the financial crisis and the collapse of the banking system globally. 1930 wasn't so bad. 1931 started to recover. Then the Credit Anstalt went bad. Then the crisis hit Berlin and London, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So the challenge for the authorities, it seems to me, is to be careful and restrained in rest- responding to stock market bubbles and to be very much on the key Vs in responding to credit bubbles. The, um, uh, I guess it was William McChesney Martin, who was chairman of the Fed for, Christopher Files will tell me, 30 years or something like that, uh, used to say that the job of the central banker was to take the punch bowl away just when the party got really good, and when the banker and, 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 and I, I owe Christopher Files the Emeritus Dean of Financial Journalists in this country uh, one of the greatest quotes of all time uh, from his friend as he translated it into the pages of the Spectator magazine his friend Nick Sibley the, the public voice and the public face of Jardine Flemings in Hong Kong giving liquidity to a banker is like giving a barrel of beer to a drunk you know exactly Exactly what is going to happen? You just don't know which wall he will choose.
3: <laughs>
1: and, this, and, and, and the regulators should be looking for those bankers with the barrels of beer, not for the speculator
0: in the equity market. Thank you. And the red shirt halfway
3: up. Hi, Dr. Amway. Um, I'm the graduate student here, and. Um, I would ask about the overpriced stock in the 2000 technology bubble. Because yep. um, I did a bit of research on that. That was in Greenspan's era. Uh, so um, actually the interest rate in America is, was increasing to let the bubble burst. So what kind of other picture you could imagine if they didn't raise the interest rate in order to you know, swap out all the banks?
1: Well, actually, I, I, I don't think that the increase in rates, which came late... Remember, you know, the history here, the micro-history, is actually quite interesting. It was in 1996 that Bob Schiller got to Greenspan with the notion and the phrase, irrational exuberance. You remember, it was in 96 before the NASDAQ, by the way, the NASDAQ, that's the inside joke on the cover of the book is that that's the NASDAQ index, exactly as shown by Professor Vianos. Uh In 1996, it's, it's, it's down about here, Right. It's, it's, it's two years before it really gets out of control. And, um, and Greenspan then backed off. Greenspan backed off. And he raised rates a bit in, um, in, in, in 2000. But I think it was that phenomenal increase in the volume of selling, of insider selling, that has a greater, is likely to, is, is more visible as the signal. Because the other side of it is, this bubble, as it grew and grew, became narrower and narrower focused on a relatively small number of sectors and of companies. It did include some very big companies like uh, Lucent. It did um, create some enormous fortunes. Uh, Cambridge University is the beneficiary of one of the great catastrophes of corporate finance, which I hope somebody's studying around here, when all, all the big telecoms companies decided they had to buy the new stuff. H, uh, Nortel and... and um, Uh, Lucent managed to do this by issuing grotesquely overvalued shares. They did what we did at BEA, but orders of magnitude. I mean, literally, two decimal orders of magnitude, more money was involved. The only one of the big telecom companies that couldn't work out how to issue shares to pay too much for an acquisition was Marconi. And went bust as a result of borrowing the money at the top of the, of, the, of, of, of the bubble. Now, the good news, as Lord Drawers is very well aware, is that one of the founders of the company they acquired was a very loyal Cambridge alumnus and has been very, very generous in giving back.
0: Everything is connected to everything else. Peter
1: Miller. Greg? Uh,
0: yeah. Oh, sorry. Down here in the very front, we have a question. Thank you.
3: Um, Peter Milliken from. Hartford College, Oxford, philosopher. Um, I'd be very interested to know your view, Bill, on the relevance of the framework of intellectual property law to the innovation economy and the balance between private and public investment. It's a very good and a
1: very timely and a very relevant question. One of the facts, one of the institutional facts of that golden age of the digital economy was that, of the foundations of the digital economy, was that the intellectual property regime was very loose. Now, it came in different pieces. First of all, software could not be patented at all, right? Second, in the world of Lord Bror's, where where patents were very important in the development of silicon technology and semiconductor processing, the government insisted on sharing intellectual property and, in fact, even required those who were providing key components for military systems to put a second source fully in business as an alternative. So technology was required to be shared. It was a very open regime. Since roughly the mid-1980s, several things happened. First, we got a uh, market-oriented reform of the U.S. Patent uh, Patent Office. Believe it or not, in the interest of promoting uh, economic return, patent examiners had their, their compensation system changed so that their bonuses were based on the number of patents they approved, about 1985. Second, software was subject to patent. Of course, so with genes, which is another question. Uh, so the, 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 the domain of patenting was enormously increased. At the same time, as the great corporations came under economic pressure, beginning with AT&T in the run-up to, de- to, to after divestiture, began to look at their patent portfolios as profit centers. And AT&T was actually the first that went out and basically said, you owe us to the marketplace. And then all the others followed. It's accumulated to where now in the world of Google and Microsoft and Apple and Samsung – the patent burden, in my view, has become an enormous deadweight tax on innovation. And it's one in which anyone in the market... The unilateral disarmament is not an option. Do- uh, Dr. Calhoun mentioned the nuanced communications the, in a sense my last hurrah as a venture capitalist. It is in the middle of the patent wars. It cannot choose not to participate. When... Microsoft pays $8 billion for a patent portfolio. Google bought Motorola not because it wants to make handsets. It paid $12 billion to acquire Motorola's patent portfolio so that it can duke it out with Microsoft uh, and Apple uh, in the arena, uh, in an arena that has nothing to do with new innovation, but has to do with how do you, and, and the number, I think the patents, as I recall, The number of patents that are represented in an iPhone, the sheer number of patents, is um, well over 10,000. I think it's a very, very heavy burden on the innovation economy,
0: a tax. I don't see how it gets reversed. So I agree. Let me add to Bill's comment that it's not just that software gets patented but that all manner of behavior related to it. So the double click, the act of clicking twice on an already selected right. icon is subject to a patent now owned by Microsoft.
1: Uh, yeah, Amazon.
0: Amazon. Um, Amazon. Oh, Amazon got the, uh, the, the click. Amazon patent, got it slashed on out of that. Yeah. Yeah. Owned for a while. Yeah. So, and this is going to have to be the last question, I'm afraid. Make it good. Yeah, now the stakes are up. Make it good.
2: It's going to be a very important one. Uh, I don't know. I hope it's going to be interesting for the others. I want to bring back, first of all, Ivo Vasilev, an entrepreneur running something in the mobile space. won't talk too much about it. I really like what you said that um, now we have oversupply of technology, especially the social technology, and it's more or less trivial. It's not too much innovation there. So I don't have as much experience as you do, and I'm not too sure where we are at the moment. Are we in a process where this is it? The technology won't bring too much, and we're in the next bubble. So, in that sense, my question would be what is the next thing? Where, where do you see technology innovation? Or are we in a moment where technology is everywhere? We have more people in the internet than ever. We have mobile phones in our hands. So, can we innovate in our behavior and things like that? So, which one? Yeah. To well, do? I, I,
1: I can be brief on this. There's an enormous amount of room left. For commercially significant innovation within the broadly defined confines of the of the digital economy, which now means between the mobile device and the cloud, and it, it's important to remember the British little railway mania took place in 1837. That's the start, right? Montgomery Ward and Sears Roebuck, which represent the killer app of the railway age, mail order, mail order, creating a national market, enabling national brands. When are they invented? 1880, 1880, 45 years after, everybody knows that a railroad can take you from here to there. So there's an enormous amount of room, and I already said, I think that, I think that particularly in the ability to, as all of this data gets accumulated, this is, the Internet still is, we're early on, 10%, only 10% of U.S. retail sales are online now, only 1% of advertising revenues are from online today. In the U.S. and the U.S. Is, is ahead of the rest of the world in this. So there's an enormous amount of learning by doing to be done, and I do think it includes exploiting major innovations, particularly, as I say, in applied mathematics, in the development of Bayesian statistics and integrating them with with lear- models that learn by doing from behavior. I think there's a huge amount of room. Uh, for continued innovation. I don't think it's going to, for all the reasons we said, I don't think it's going to stimulate a new bubble. Maybe in your lifetime, but probably not in mine.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, with that, thank you, Bill. Thank you, Dimitri.